Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christianity Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, January 16th, 2021. Right now, it is Thursday morning, and we have our friend Truthvids here with us once again to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 23 of our series of presentations. Hello, Truthvids. Thank you for being here. Hey, Bill. Yeah, thanks for me. So, yeah, we're still doing uh, more mistranslations. As you can guess, there's a lot in the Bible. And here we're going into Luke, Matthew, and Mark. And we're going to see especially the confrontations with the Pharisees and, you know, other people in Judea. And, and this, this is especially where people get confused. They, they think that, uh, as we've said many times, that Christ's own people rejected him. But you gain a much deeper understanding once you realize he's identifying them as the vipers, the serpent, or this, or descendants of vipers and serpents. And when you connect that with the serpent in Genesis 3.15 and the serpent that's surrounding us in or casting out the flood that surrounds us in Revelation, you begin to see that it's all connected, that it's this evil race descended from the, the fallen angels and Cain, and, and they are our enemy, and they are Christ's enemy as well, always. Right, Bill? Well, well, absolutely, and that's why he told them, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. It, it's crystal clear. Well, once you have a proper understanding and once the, the true meanings of some of these terms, because they have been obfuscated by the church translations for a long time, once you have a proper understanding of the meanings of these terms, once they are translated properly, and you understand why they're being applied within the historical context of the time, they agree with the entire context of Scripture, and your worldview from an understanding of Scripture becomes that much clearer. You have the tools to formulate a proper worldview based on Scripture, and all of the seeming conflicts and inconsistencies within the Scripture vanish. They simply vanish the way that the denominational churches have translated scripture, God is basically a hypocrite and, and the Bible is full of conflicts and inconsistencies. They all vanish once the scriptures are properly translated, once the reality that race is a subject of scripture is properly confronted and accepted all of the problems disappear, and we see the true story of the Bible. So we had, we didn't discuss every possible error of interpretation in John, but we did seek to address those passages which would change one's view of Scripture and potentially one's entire worldview. And we discussed them and, and explained how they should have 
been translated in the context, in the historical context of first century Judea. So now we're going to commence with that same endeavor in the so-called synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and discuss not every mistranslation, but at least those mistranslations or misunderstandings or corruptions in those Gospels that would clarify one's worldview once the true meanings of those passages is brought to light. So while there are not, and there aren't, there are not a lot of misunderstandings or, or mistranslations in the Synoptic Gospels, there are some critical ones, and we hope to present them here. We have already spoken about some obvious misunderstandings. For example, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, we see John the Baptist calling certain of the Pharisees and Sadducees a generation of vipers, as you had mentioned. And the, the true meaning of that is absolutely lost in that English translation the way that we use the term generation today, it, the true meaning is lost. The word translated as generation is genema. Genema really means that which is produced. So it literally means offspring. It's speaking about what vipers produce and not about vipers themselves. So in essence, where John used that phrase, generation of vipers, he's calling the parents of these men vipers, not the men themselves. Of course, kind begets kind. So if their parents are vipers, they are vipers. Why would John the Baptist call their parents vipers? Can we assume that John the Baptist even knew who their, their parents personally, that John knew that their parents were bad people. He's calling an entire group of men a, a generation or the offspring of vipers when John was raised in the wilderness and, and in Galilee. And he couldn't have known the parents of all of these men, but he called them all a generation of vipers meaning that they are the offspring of vipers, he must have been speaking of a particular race and not merely of bad people. He didn't even know their parents. And the same phrase appears where Christ himself used it in the same manner of his adversaries in Matthew chapters 12 and 23. And the use of the phrase proves that there is an actual race of men referred to as vipers in Judea at the time of Christ, or both, <coughs> or both Christ and John are merely slanderers. The parents of these men not being present to defend themselves against the accusation. In the ancient world, men took their words seriously. And, and if I call somebody a son of a bitch, I'm actually not calling the individual a bitch, I'm calling his mother a bitch. So I'm slandering his mother. And if his mother isn't there to defend herself, if I could prove she's really a bitch, if I can't prove it, 
Well, then I'm a slanderer and I'm convicting myself with my slander. And men took their word seriously. If I called you the offspring of vipers, you should say, hey, wait a minute. My parents are good people. They're not vipers. Of course, the men didn't defend themselves in that way. <laughs> and they're being called a race of vipers because their parents are vipers. So, so that meaning, why is that meaning lost in the denominational churches? Because that's plainly what it means. The, the question is rhetorical. You don't have to answer it because what we know why. It's because the denominational churches simply, and, and that this has been going on for 1,700 years, have simply ignored the racial aspects of Scripture, and, and they want to attribute everything to feelings and beliefs. And, and if you feel right, if you believe right, then you're okay. And that's, that, that's basically absurd when we examine the original languages. <clears throat> so now we will begin in, <clears throat> I'm sorry, my voice is, is froggy. Now we will begin in Matthew chapter 5. And, and this, is, um, th this is really an important distinction. It's going to seem trite, perhaps, but when you examine certain promises in Scripture, such as all Israel being saved, if you encounter these words, you're going to be in conflict with yourself, where we have to wonder about this word translated as hell or as hellfire. Does it refer to fiery trials in this world or does it refer to eternal destruction? And, and there's a significant difference. The King James Version of Matthew chapter 5, 20, verse 22 reads, and these are the words of Christ, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, which means worthless, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever, whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. The phrase hellfire appears one other time in Matthew chapter 18 and three times in Mark chapter 9. But we also see the same Greek word translated merely as hell in Matthew chapters 10 and 23, in Luke chapter 12, and in James chapter 3. So, this word hell is problematic because it was translated from two different Greek words. Once again, just as devil was translated <clears throat> from two different Greek words, and no distinction was made between them in English, when there is a significant distinction in the meanings of the two words, we had the same problem with this word hell. It was translated from two different Greek words, which mean totally different things. And one of those Greek words isn't even really Greek, and that's Gehenna. But the other word is Hades, or Hades in Greek, and Hades is something entirely different. In classical and Hellenistic Greek, Hades 
or Hades, is the underworld abode of the dead, the place where their spirits were imprisoned after they passed from this world. It is referred to as a prison in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, where Christ went to the spirits in prison so that the gospel was preached also to them that are dead. And Peter repeats that in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6 in the same, in the same epistle. The Greek word Hades was sometimes transliterated as Hades, but at other times in the King James Version, in Luke chapter 16, in Acts chapter 2, and in the Revelation, in chapters 1, 6, and 20, it was translated as hell. In Revelation chapter 20, Hell, is, hell and death are thrown into the lake of fire. It is Hades and not Gehenna which is thrown into the lake of fire. Gehenna is the other word translated as hell. Gehenna is not a Greek word at all. And neither does it even appear in the Septuagint. Rather, it is a Hebraism used by Christ, which was written or uttered in Greek in the New Testament period. In Jeremiah chapters 7, 19, and 32, we see references to the Valley of Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M. And we will read Ron. We will read one of those references from Jeremiah chapter 32, speaking of the children of Israel, and they're wandering off into idolatry. And it says, <clears throat> "And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Moloch, which I commanded them not." neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So the valley of Hinnom or the valley of the son of Hinnom is mentioned six times earlier in the historical books of scripture, as well as those occasions in those three chapters of Jeremiah. Understanding this distinction in these words translated as hell is important because the scriptures promise that all Israel shall ultimately be saved. While we see these warnings from Christ that the souls and bodies of sinners may be destroyed in hellfire, as the King James Version often translated Gehenna. Yet the word Gehenna is evidently a compound word where the first part, Geh, is derived from the Greek word Gay, and yes, that's the way it should be pronounced, which is land. It's the Ada vowel. The Ada vowel is like a second E in Greek. It could be pronounced, it, it should be pronounced like more like a long A. 
than an E, and, and that's why G and Ada is gay. It means land. It's the same word through Latin from which we get our word geography or, or geology, that GE meaning land. It's the same word that gives us the Greek idol Gahia, which is the goddess of the earth. The later portion of the word Gehenna comes from the Hebrew form of the name Hinnom, Gehenam, land of Hinnom. While there is no set method by which the phrase Valley of the Son of Hinnom is written in the Greek of the Septuagint, in two places in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapters 28 and 33, it is Gahi ben Hinnom, or Gay ben Hinnom, or Gay Benahi Hinnom, and dropping the word for son, which is the ben or bene, that would be Gahi Hinnom, or Gay Hena, Gay Hinnom, eliding the first diphthong, which is AI, which I would pronounce as Gahi and dropping the M, where we have Gehenna, from Gahihanam. So it's elided into Gehenna. Once that is realized, we may see that the references to destruction in hellfire in the King James Version of the Bible are all references to the destruction of the earthly body, the body and the soul, the body and the life but not to the destruction of the eternal spirit. Just as the children of Israel had burned their own infants in the fire in the land of Hinnom, Gehenna, the land of Hinnom. So that's what those, those passages are referring to. Paul described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that if a man had no works, everything would be burned up in the fire, that same fire, yet he himself would be tried by that same fire and his body destroyed, but he himself would be, his spirit would be saved in the day of Christ. So Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is basically explaining what Christ had meant in these passages which warn of hellfire. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle spoke at length about the fiery trials which the faith would bring to the disciples, to the disciples of Christ in this world. And Christ in those passages concerning hellfire, was warning of that same thing. I don't know if you have anything to say in response to that or to add to it. Yeah, yeah, I just had a few things. Would this also relate to where Christ said, be good, uh, paraphrasing, be good to your brother and you will pour um, coals on his head if he's being you know, evil to you, that, that, that he's essentially saying, uh, as long as it was an Israelite doing it to you, that he will, that person would come into a fiery trial if he was doing evil to you. Well, well, right, I believe so. 
that that if, if your brother, seeing that he's a fellow Israelite, if, if your brother does you wrong, you should forgive him 70 times, seven times, right? If you're kind to him in return and he does you wrong, Yahweh God will punish him. And, and that was actually a citation from Paul of Tarsus. It's in Romans chapter 12. I believe that Paul was citing the Psalms when he said that. Psalm 140. David speaking about his enemies. His enemies at the time were Israelites. And, and he said, as for the head of those that compass me, about let the mischief of their own lips cover them let burning coals fall upon them let them be cast into the fire into the deep pits that they not rise up again and and if you examine the context of the psalm the psalm is really about the israelites that were pursuing him it, it was first with saul and then with absalom and, and David's praying an imprecatory prayer against his, the, the fellow men that are after his life for no reason. <coughs> Not necessarily speaking of the enemies of God, but praying that God judge David's own personal enemies. But David was always kind to them. David meant Saul no harm. He never offered Saul any harm. And actually slew the man who slew Saul, in spite of the fact that Saul was dying anyway, that he was injured. So yes, that's basically referring to the same thing. And this always gets manipulated, right? That we have to help the other races, but but you have to understand it only applies to Israelites, right? We're the only ones put on trial when we do bad to our own people, and that we should not have this view or mindset at all with the other races no absolutely not <clears throat> david never hated his own son he, he even though his own son absalom had first killed his killed his own brother he killed one of his own brothers even though that brother had raped his sister he killed his own brother and <clears throat> He overthrew David and usurped his throne and drove David out of Jerusalem. Now, ultimately, David had, had um, overcome that and received back his throne, and Absalom was dead, but David grieved over that. He cried for his son. He loved his son. In spite of the evil that his own son had done him, David still loved his son. The same thing with Saul. David loved Saul. He, he always respected Saul. He never wanted to do Saul any harm, even though Saul pursued David for years trying to kill him. And, and David did nothing to merit Saul's trying to kill him. David never disrespected or hated Saul. But the same David said, speaking to Yahweh God, I have hated your enemies with a perfect hatred. And, and the enemies of God and, and the sinful Israelites are two distinct parties. David never hated sinful Israelites. He only hated God's enemies.
the Canaanites and anybody else who would oppose the, the word of God. At the same time, David was gleeful. I, I believe it's in the 138th Psalm, perhaps. No, I'm sorry. It's in the 147th Psalm where David, speaking of God, says he shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and for his judgments they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye Yahweh. David was gleeful. He celebrated the fact that only the children of Israel had the law of God. And he counted everyone else as the uncircumcised, as the enemies of God. And he hated the enemies of God with a perfect hatred. Yet David was a man after God's own heart. Because he did that. Because he had no care for the other races. Yeah. And also the fact that um, Christ is using uh, Greek words like Hades. Uh, I believe we already kind of mentioned this but it shows you that he was for the greeks for the for you know the roman greco world for, for those were the people he came from and he spoke in the language they understood he didn't use any other cultures words right well well right absolutely not he didn't insist on calling it by the hebrew term sheol he called it hades he wrote he he uttered the word hades in relation to the underworld abode of the dead which I believe simply represents alienation from God because the entire Adamic race was alienated from God with the fall of Adam. And he's reconciling the children of Israel. He's redeeming Israel. But at the same time, he's redeeming the entire Adamic race. And, and that's what Peter is basically telling us in 1 Peter chapters 3 and 4 that Christ even preached the gospel of God to the spirits of the dead who were in prison, describing those who died in the flood of Noah. Now, they were sinners above all other sinners in the ancient world, yet even they had that opportunity for reconciliation to God. Therefore, explaining that, Peter used the verb um, Tartarizo, which means to cast into Tartarus. It's actually a concept from the most ancient classical poets and, and from the Homeric literature, this term Tartarizo, to cast into Tartarus. Originally, in ancient Greek writings, the underworld abode of the dead was called Tartarus. And Hades was the god of the underworld, the, the demon that was believed by the Greeks to rule over the underworld. So, ultimately, through time, the place, the name of the place was confounded with the name of the god. And the place the word Tartarus fell into disuse, and the place was known as Hades. So that's the term that the apostles used to describe the underworld abode of the dead, right from the Greek mythology. 
because it meant the same thing as the Hebrew word Sheol or, or the term netherworld. The same thing happened in English where originally the abode of the dead was not called hell. And hell, the, the word hell comes from the name of the Germanic goddess that the Germans had, had perceived as ruling over the underworld. The, 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 the god of hell was a woman in Germanic mythology named Hela. So eventually in Anglo-German language, the name Hela, which was originally the name of a demon or a goddess, had come to be the name of the place, just like in Greek with Tartarus and Hades. So the underworld became known as Hell after this goddess Hela, who, who is mentioned in some of the Germanic poetry. Now, modern humanists and secularists, secularists claim that these terms simply meant the grave. And they do mean the grave, but they meant more than that. There, there was originally a deeper understanding of the terms because the spirit of a man, by the ancient English, by the ancient Germans, by the ancient Greeks, by pre-Christian Germanic people, by pre-Christian Greeks and, and Babylonians and Assyrians, and Romans, they all believed that the spirit of a man <clears throat> continued to live after death. If you read the Homeric literature, Achilles appears in, in a, um, an apparition to Odysseus, and, and they have a conversation. Just like Samuel was called up from the dead by the necromancer and had a conversation with Saul in the book of Judges. This belief has been with our race from the beginning. If you read the Odyssey of Homer, Odysseus, the title character, he visited, he, he was depicted, and, and this isn't historical, of course, it's part of the story, but he is depicted as visiting Tartarus to communicate with the spirits of the dead. So the Greeks believed in, in their mythology, they expressed the belief that this was possible, just as the Babylonians had also believed it a thousand years before the Greeks, or the Sumerians, I should say, a thousand years before the Greeks. So these beliefs have always been with our race, and they've always been a part of our mythology. And that just because they're a part of mythology doesn't mean that they're not true. The word mythology comes from the Greek word muthus, and muthus is the English word mouth, comes from the same source. Muthus is something that's transmitted by mouth. It's transmitted orally. Doesn't mean it's not real or it's not doesn't have aspects of truth in it. So even Christ used the name of a pagan god to describe the the 
underworld because he was speaking to Greeks and that's the word that they use to describe the underworld or the netherworld or the abode of the dead, the spirits of the dead after they pass. I don't know if that was too long a digression, but it had to be explained. Moving on to Matthew chapter 10, there's a term there, Simon the Canaanite, who was supposedly one of the apostles. But was Simon really a Canaanite? And in the King James Version, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 4, we see the Simon the Canaanite mentioned among the 12 apostles. But from ancient times, <clears throat> the Canaanites were accursed. The children of Israel were commanded to kill all of the Canaanites. <clears throat> I'm sorry, my throat is terrible today. And when they failed, the children of Israel were told that because of that failure, the Canaanites would be to them as pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. That's in Numbers 33, 55. And later in Joshua, we read, know for a certainty that Yahweh your God will no more drive out the nations from before you because they failed to do it, then Yahweh God decided or, or told them, because it was his plan all along, but he told them that they were going to be stuck with these people. This is in Joshua chapter 23. But they shall be snares and traps unto you, and scourges in your sides, and thorns in your eyes, language very similar to Deuteronomy, until you perish from off this good land which Yahweh your God has given you. So we see that these Canaanites are going to be nothing but trouble to the children of Israel until they die off from the land, until the children of Israel die off from the land. But then there are ultimate promises in Scripture that one day all of the Canaanites would be destroyed. And we read, for example, in Zechariah chapter 14, in the final passage of the book of that prophet, from verse 20, in that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto Yahweh, and the pots in Yahweh's house shall be like bowls before the altar. In, in other words, they will be shiny and golden and just as prestigious. Yeah, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto Yahweh of hosts. And the pots and bowls, there are actually analogies or allegories for people. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seethe therein. And in that day... There shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of Yahweh of hosts. We await the fulfillment of those words to this day, but we should know that they certainly shall be fulfilled. The attitude towards the Canaanite has never changed. Even though the Canaanite woman of Matthew chapter 15 had played the suppliant, and for that reason, 
Christ honoring that custom had healed her daughter. She was still a dog, and she still didn't merit the bread of the children at the table. She got some crumbs because of her playing the suppliant and acknowledging his office and position, but she's still a dog. And after he healed her daughter, she's still a dog. She didn't stop being a dog, which is how, which shows that the way that God himself feels about the Canaanites has not changed. They're still dogs. There was no other reason that woman should have been called a dog, and she admitted she was a dog because she knew that she was a Canaanite. <clears throat> now, the circumstantial evidence reveals to us that Judas Iscariot was also a Canaanite. Being an Edomite, if you're an Edomite, you, you also descended from the Canaanites. And Christ had said that he purposely chose a devil, one devil among the twelve. Not two devils, one devil. And Judas was used in that role to be his betrayer. Christ said in John chapter 6, have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. Doing that, Christ spared one of his own from bearing that burden as the scriptures prophesied that one of his friends would betray him. So he chose one of his enemies to be his earthly friend for that purpose. And of course, the role which Judas would fulfill was temporary to be his earthly friend. But if we believe that a Canaanite was chosen by Christ to fulfill the positive role of an apostle, who would actually take the gospel to his people, then God is a hypocrite. And we can be dismissive of his words in the Old Testament concerning the Canaanites, since they would no longer matter. So we have to ask ourselves, do those words no longer matter? The truth is that Simon was not a Canaanite. Although the manuscripts of Matthew were divided on the reading of this passage at an early time. Here in Matthew, the ancient codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, which are nearly equal in antiquity, they both date to the 4th century AD. They have Canaanite in the Sinaiticus, we see Canaanite, but in the Codex Vaticanus, we see Canaanian. And Canaanian is a different word with a different meaning. They each have roughly equal support from manuscripts which are nearly as old. Some manuscripts have the reading Canaanite we see in the Codex Vaticanus, and some ancient manuscripts have the reading Canaanian, which we see in, in, I'm sorry, the word Canaanite in the Codex Sinaiticus, and some manuscripts have Canaanian, which we see in the Codex Vaticanus. So the same list is given in Mark chapter 3, verse 18. And in Mark 3, 18, where the King James Version has Simon the Canaanite once again, all of the ancient codices have Simon as a Canaanian, not a Canaanite. And that's the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus have Canaanian. 
But the Codex Alexandrinus, which is from the 5th century, has Canaanite. And the Codex Alexandrinus is wanting most of Matthew's gospel. It, is not, it, it, it was damaged, that manuscript. And Matthew's gospel being on top, I think the first 25 chapters are missing from the Codex Alexandrinus, which is unfortunate. <clears throat> but the Codex Ephraimi Siri, which is also called the Ephraimi Rescriptus, which is very close to and usually agrees with the Codex Alexandrinus, that Codex has Simon as a Canahian in Mark 3.18, not as a Canaanite. So even the Alexandrian tradition is split on this matter. Now, that term Alexandrian tradition is problematical. In the 19th century, the Codex Alexandrinus and the Codex Ephraimi-Siri, they are the two most significant manuscripts of what's called of what used to be identified as Alexandrian. But now, modern theologians and, and New Testament language experts call them the Byzantine text type. So they used to be called Alexandrian, but now they're called Byzantine. The Codex Alexandrinus is esteemed to have been the most significant source for the for what's called the majority text used by the Greek Orthodox and, and Roman Catholic churches. So it's called the Byzantine text type for that reason, because it was sent to Byzantium at an early time. And the manuscripts of the majority text, at least for the greater part, have been derived from that codex. So the Codex Ephraimi Siri or Ephraimi Rescriptus is very, very close to it. In almost all of the deviations among the ancient manuscripts, wherever the Codex Alexandrinus differs from the Codex Sinaiticus or the Codex Beze or the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Ephraimi Siri almost always agrees with the Alexandrinus. But here, in Mark 3.18, it does not agree. It has Simon as a Canahian, not as a Canaanite. And both the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanists have Simon as a Canahian and not as a Canaanite. So the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Ephraimi-Siri have Canahian in both places, Matthew 10.4 and Mark 3.18. And the codices Sinaiticus and Washingtonensis are split in both places. They have Canaanite in Matthew 10.4 and Canahian in Mark 3.18. Considering both Mark and Matthew, the preponderance of the evidence is that Simon was a Canahian not a Canaanite. And I'll explain the significance of that soon. Luke calls Simon, in his list, the zealot, which many errant commentators take that as a meaning of the word Canaanite. However, that is highly unlikely. The Hebrew word for Canaan, 
according to Strong's Concordance, comes from a verb meaning to humiliate, not to be a zealot. It is much more plausible that Simon was from the city Cana, not far from Nazareth in Galilee, where Yahshua attended the wedding, which is described in the opening chapters of John's Gospel. And therefore, he was a Canaan, and that Zealot was just a nickname. Simon was a Canaan. He was a man from Cana. That's why he was called a Canaan. In John's Gospel, at chapter 21, verse 2, there's a man called Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, who is also mentioned by John five times in chapter one of his gospel. But Nathanael is not mentioned at all in the other gospels. And this is the, that man whom Christ had said, look, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. So therefore, it is certain, in my opinion, that these two men were one and the same. Simon Simon Nathaniel, the zealot of Cana. And that's how I see this. Now, it must be mentioned that some commentators believe Nathaniel to be Bartholomew, Bartholomew instead, but that has no corroboration whatsoever. But in any event, Simon was not a Canaanite, and God is not a hypocrite. Simon was a man of Cana in Galilee. But when you, when you clear up, and the manuscripts usually do it for us, when you clear up all of these little discrepancies, discrepancies, I'm sorry, you clear up all of these little discrepancies, the, the narrative of Scripture is much more consistent, and your worldview can be much more clear. But all those little yeah, discrepancies um, have to be fixed. If Simon had been a Canaanite, then Christ would have said, here is a man full of guile, right? If he if he'd have said, uh, describe Judas, then he would definitely would have said, here's a betrayer, a man full of treachery. Well, well, right. If Simon had been a Canaanite, then Christ would have had to say, to be consistent, Christ would have had to say, have I not chosen you ten and two of you are devils? Otherwise, on what basis is Christ calling Judas Iscariot a devil? Because Judas hadn't done anything wrong. There were no accusations of sin or wrongdoing up to that point where Christ called him a devil. And... um. The Alexandrian is that was that written in Alexandria then, and there were a lot of uh, Judeans there, weren't there? Yes, originally the Codex Alexandrinus came from Alexandria in Egypt and was given as a gift by some bishop of Alexandria to one of the patriarchs or one of the kings, perhaps, one of the Byzantine kings in Constantinople. I don't remember the exact story. So the Codex Alexandrinus had come from Alexandria to Byzantium. And for that reason, Westcott and Hort and other 19th century um, 
lexicographers and Greek linguists had identified the Codex Alexandrinus and the codices which are related to it, like the Codex Ephraimi Siri, or Ephraimi Rescriptus, as it's now called, but that used to be called the Ephraimi Siri, that they identified those codices as Alexandrian. And for that reason, in a lot of my early podcasts, because I only drew on 19th century linguistic sources when I translated the Christogenian New Testament, for that reason, I call those manuscripts the Alexandrian tradition. And it's confusing because now in the 20th century, in modern times, the, those manuscripts are called the Byzantine text type. They're not called Alexandrian any longer, even though they came from Alexandria. So that's confusing. And at first, when I started reading, when um, I came out of prison and, and had a much wider assortment of literature available to me, I'm reading Byzantine text type, and I'm like, Byzantine text type, that's an Alexandrian manuscript. But modern scholars actually changed the terminology from the terminology which was used in the 19th century. Now they call the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus Alexandrian. But in the 19th century, those manuscripts were not identified as Alexandrian. So modern scholars have shifted drastically from the scholarship of the Greek New Testament scholarship of the 19th century. And I'm not saying that it's for the better. Quite often, it's for the worst. I think it reflects the period when the Jews got their hands on it all. But no, that's, that, that's fine. I mean, the labels are just confusing. The next portion of Matthew, I mean, we could spend forever on Matthew. We'd only be repeating ourselves in, in um, Matthew chapter 23 and, and speaking about race and serpents and vipers. I decided to move on, and, and I believe we've covered those topics sufficiently on, on, in, in the first 22 portions of this presentation. I decided to move on to the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. I don't know if you have anything to say. Do, do you believe that the, um, well, at least some of the Pharisees understood exactly what he meant? I mean, I know that they said we aren't of fornication, but do you think they understood directly that he was saying that they were from Cain, that they were, you know, from the serpent? In John chapter 8, they had to understand it that way. There's no other way they could have understood it. He was a murderer from the beginning, and that explains it all, that he's telling them that they're descendants of Cain, blaming them for the blood of Abel. In the ancient word, in the ancient world, men took their words a lot more seriously than we take those words today. If I accuse you of the blood of Abel, I am telling you that you are a descendant of Cain who was liable for the blood of Abel. That when you sinned, when you committed such a grievous act, that 
your 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 children were just as liable as you were for for the blood of, of that you're liable to and and <clears throat> we see that expressed often in the old testament just as your children inherit your blessings your children inherit your curses and your children inherit the the consequences of the actions which you've undertaken in your life it if if you sue me and and win my estate then my children are deprived of my estate so if you're convicted convicted of some grievous wrongdoing and and you should be under a penalty of death well your children are going to suffer on account of that as well and if you should have died before you have children then then your children should be dead or perhaps your children should be dead anyway the ancient Persians and Herodotus explains this and some of the other classical writers but when you sinned against your nation in Persia the Persian king would send the army and destroy your entire village and kill everybody and usually your village was made up of your relatives and everybody was snuffed out and we see that in the Old Testament the the man who who had taken the um the gold and and the babylonish the the babylonish garment Achan when he took that gold and that babylonian garment he really wanted to start a bank is what he wanted to do <laughs> and, and and his whole family was destroyed for that everything everything he had and all his children were destroyed in the valley of Achor. They all suffered the, the, the penalty for that crime. They took his sons and his daughters, his oxen and his asses, his sheep and his tent, and all that he had. And they were all destroyed in the valley of Achor. That's the, the ancient world. That, that's the way it was. So ultimately, all of the descendants of Cain are going to be destroyed. And Christ is telling these people by calling them the, the children of the first murderer that they're the descendants of Cain. They could understand that no other way. He wasn't merely calling them names. And, and we see that in Matthew chapter 23, I believe, and in Luke chapter 11. And I didn't know if we should revisit it because I thought that we discussed it sufficiently in other podcasts but what when he in in John chapter 8 he's telling them explicitly that your father is Cain the first murderer he was a murderer from the beginning only Cain was a murderer from the beginning and and then in Matthew 23 and in Luke 11 he's telling them that their race Genea, their race is responsible for all the blood from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, who died between the altar and the temple. And some people, some commentators believe that that is the Zechariah the prophet of the book of the prophets. But, and, and we see in Matthew that the word son of Barachias are interpolated they're added in some manuscripts which the king james followed but those words are missing from the version in luke 
I believe that that's the father of John the Baptist, which is what the an apocryphal work titled the Protoevangelion of James says that that was the father of John the Baptist. In any event, there's a wordplay there that's that's evident in English, but not in Greek, because in Greek that Z letter is not the last letter of the alphabet. I think it's the seventh or eighth letter. I think it's the eighth letter in the Greek alphabet. But from Abel to Zechariah is all the blood of the prophets from A to Z. <laughs> that's that's the way I see that. So, so Christ knew. Christ could foresee the future, and he knew that eventually it would end up that way, right? Well, well, right, absolutely. <laughs> There's another word play in Matthew chapter 25. That's a, a word play in English, but not in Greek, where it talks about the sun and the sun of righteousness will set um, with healing in its wings, and, and be ye sons of your father, so that the sun of righteousness what will set with healing in its wings. And, and that's a word play that works in English, but not in Greek. So there are other word plays that make perfect sense in English, but not in Greek because the son of righteousness is also Christ who is the son S O N. Right. So that there's a, a few of those instances in scripture where there are these to me, these profound word plays in English that don't make any sense in Greek. That's because sun in Greek is helios, and it's not anything like that word huios, which is um, a, a sun that's a person, right? Your sun. But the sun in the sky is helios. So, okay, that's a digression too. Is there anything else before we move on to this great commission? What? What? Okay, I was just going to say that um, Cain robbed Abel of all his descendants and his life, but Abel still got an afterlife, and Cain got to live a you know probably a long life and have loads of descendants, but ultimately none of them will get an afterlife. So it's fair, right? Well, well, right, and there's a lot of wordplay in, in their names, because Abel means breath. <clears throat> Abel had the spirit. Cain means to get or to acquire, and Cain was not legitimate. So why wouldn't they have those names? The names are a perfect reflection, and Seth is, is a replacement and he's, the scripture explicitly states that he's a replacement for Abel. So under the later Hebrew law, Seth's children weren't his own, or, or at least some of them were. But his firstborn was, was actually, would have been the son of Abel, would have been considered the son of Abel. Under the later Hebrew law, where, where you must raise up seed to your brother, or in your brother's name. <clears throat> That law wasn't in effect in Genesis, but Seth was a replacement for Abel, not for Cain. Yet Cain still had no part in the inheritance. So if the, the, the son that's the heir, or that's the entitled heir, if he's lost, then the next son would replace him, which proves that Cain could not have been Adam's true genetic son, 
even though Adam must have raised him as a son because he accepted Eve in her sin, and Cain was not Adam's son, or he would have been the, the one that needed replacing so that his seed could be counted as the heir. Okay, that's a digression also. The so-called Great Commission, we read in the King James Version, the last passage of the Gospel of Matthew from chapter 28, from verse 16, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. <clears throat> Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, or Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And the point of contention in reference to our 100 proofs is that commission to go to all nations. Teach all nations, baptizing them. Here the rendering of the Greek phrase, panta, ta, and panta means all, and ta means the, and ethne which means nations, it's plural. Ta is plural, panta is plural, ethne is plural. It's translated as all nations, and that's dishonest because the presence of the definite article, ta, requires it to be translated as all the nations. According to Liddell and Scott <clears throat> in their Greek-English lexicon, the definite article was used to specify individuals, and they explain that it must be recognized in places where it is so used, specifically giving examples from the Homeric writings, where at an early time it was also used as a demonstrative pronoun. So they also explain that the definite article was used not only with common appellatives, adjectives, and participles to specify them as present to sense or mind, but also frequently where we use the possessive pronoun. And then, in a generic sense, where the individual is treated as a type or of outstanding members of a class, outstanding members of a class. So the use of the definite article elucidates the fact that Christ intended the gospel for certain nations and not just for any nations. Those certain nations are defined in the words of the prophets and in the later epistles of Peter, Paul, and James. The Great Commission is to the nations, to particular nations. It's not just to any nations. Once again, a small correction in the King James translation helps to support the worldview which, which is formulated 
when one has a true understanding of Scripture. And then when you understand history that the whole Adamic world had been replaced by the Israelites, um, or at least they dominated them, that then it all becomes clear that they went to these white nations that were, had all become Israelites or ruled over by Israelites, right? Well, well, right. That's the promise to Abraham, is that he would inherit the nations, the nations of his own time. And who are the nations of his own time? The, the nations of Genesis chapter 10, which are all the white nations descended from Noah, were the nations of Abraham's own time. The Persians, the, the Assyrians, the Medes, and and the, the Egyptians even, and, and all of the other nations of Mesopotamia and, and Southern Europe. By the time of Christ, the children of Israel did dominate all of those nations. They dominated them as Romans or as Parthians or, or as Scythians or as Greeks. Dorian or Danning Greeks, not the Ionian Greeks. The Ionian Greeks were Japethites. So they did dominate those nations. And in the West, they were Phoenicians. They were proto-Celts. They were a part of the peoples later known as Celtic or Celt-Iberian. This is something in Mark I would like to discuss because it's often cited along with the Great Commission of Matthew. But once again, it doesn't necessarily say what the denominational translators claim that it says, even though it's from a passage in Mark that's spurious because it's so often cited. I thought we should, and because it's parallel to the Great Commission in Matthew, I thought that we should discuss it. And, and that's the phrase in Mark chapter 16 where it says, every creature. I don't know if you have anything further. I think, yeah, I think I've heard people try and challenge you on this one and, and see, see that, that, that Jesus came for everybody. It's our duty to spread the gospel to everyone. And it just isn't. Well, every creature, that means you have to preach the gospel to your dog until he understands it. The way that it's interpreted today. If it means every race, well, it says every creature. So you have to preach your gospel to the zoo animals and, and to everything else that you see. Everything that moves. Every cockroach has to hear the gospel of Christ. Every worm. Yet you could have this one way or the other. You can't have it both ways. That this has to refer to a particular people or it has to refer to every creature the way we understand creature. Well, that would include the, the lions on, on on the plains of Central Africa, I, I mean the monkeys in the jungle, as well as the black people or Negroes. There is not much more I can say concerning significant mistranslations in Mark, which we have not already discussed in Matthew. But there is a passage at the end of Mark, which we should discuss. And this is from the King James Version of Mark chapter 16. And it starts at verse 14. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, 
Go ye into all the world, all the cosmos, all the society, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. <clears throat> and these signs shall follow them that believe. And, and this is that this entire passage, I believe, is a novel, but I will explain why after I cite it. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, and there's really nothing wrong with that. And they shall speak with new tongues. Now, new tongues means new languages, and that if those tongues are are new to everybody, it depends on the context you want to understand that in. But that concept is not really found anywhere else in Scripture, that they shall speak in new tongues. So that's been twisted by the... Um, by some of the more charismatic Christian sects of recent times. They shall take up serpents, and this concept is also not found anymore in scriptures because it's referring to literal snakes. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, any poison, it shall not hurt them. So those passages are a serious problem because first they represent concepts here in verses um, 17 and 18, concepts that have no other witness in scripture. And they are clearly errant historically. So, so many snake handlers, charismatic snake handlers have been killed by poison snakes. And, and yet they actually do practice this in, in places in, and I don't know if it's in, in Britain or in Europe, but it is practiced in places here in America. And, and it's caused a lot of harm. It I think really we killed has. all the snakes here. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, which of course there's really nothing wrong with. It's this every creature phrase that we are going to contend with here and what it actually means. The words, unlike the, the words panta ta ethne in Matthew, which are all plural, right? All of the nations. Here, passe te ketisai, passe te ketisai, all these words, passe, which is all or every, and te, which is the article. So it's speaking about a specific creation, katisai. These words are all singular. They're not plural. So it's all of the creation, not every creature. They're singular words, and every creature that word every, it, it sort of implies a plural of something. But this here, it should be 
really translated as all the creation, a specific creation. So some of the things in this passage have no other witness in scripture and being nonsense, and we're going to talk about the passage itself first, being nonsense, they must be rejected. And I mean that that those lines about speaking with new tongues, taking up serpents, drinking poisons, they must be rejected. They are nonsense. There's no other witness to them in scripture. In fact, the children of Israel are warned against practicing sorcery in the Revelation. And and the drinking sorcery, if you understand ancient Greek and and ancient pagan medicine, sorcery was actually the consumption of poisons to heal diseases, in part. So, those things are nonsense and they must be rejected. But the truth is that they were almost certainly not a part of Mark's gospel in the first place. The last 12 verses of Mark, from verses 9 through 20, are found no earlier than in the Codex Alexandrinus. They are not found in the earlier codices, Sinaiticus or Vaticanus, nor in several earlier Latin or Syriac sources, nor in the writings of several of the earlier so-called church fathers. The codices which do have these verses, the Alexandrinus, the Washingtonensis, the Ephraimi Siri, or Ephraimi Rescriptus, and the Codex Beze. They contain considerable differences from one another within these, this passage. And some of those differences are of considerable length. Some later Greek manuscripts from the 19th century added a short, they rejected this passage and added a short ending, maybe two verses, to the Gospel of Mark. That being said, we reject both endings of the Gospel of Mark as spurious additions, and would rather see Mark's Gospel end at verse 8, where it appears to be incomplete. It simply appears that there was no end, or the ending was lost, to Mark's gospel at an early time. And that these two different endings which exist, beginning with the Codex Alexandrinus, are both spurious. That being said, even if we accept this clause, which we should not because it is part of a spurious edition, it does not say what the churches think it says. But here we are going to address the phrase where it says, proclaim the gospel to every creature for that reason, because this does not say what the denominational churches think it says. In the words, passe te catisai, or every creature, we have an article And we have a singular adjective translated as every, a definite article accompanying a noun translated as creature, and that noun is ketesis, which is properly creation. 
Liddell and Scott define catesis as a founding or a foundation, and then loosely equated to another word, praxis, a doing or an act or a creating, and then finally a creating or the creation, and they have of the universe, and then that which was created, the creation. So the entire creation can be considered a catesis, but that's not how it was used by the apostles, or at least by the apostle Paul. Paul of Tarsus did not use the term catesis to refer to the entire creation of God, at least not always. And Christ could not have expected his disciples to preach the gospel to serpents or to monkeys or to apes or to goats or to dogs. In fact, he certainly didn't expect his apostles to preach to serpents, goats, apes, monkeys, and dogs. And, and I'm speaking to, about allegorical goats and dogs as well as to literal goats and dogs. In, in Romans chapter 8, Paul used the same term, catesis, where he wrote, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature, catesis, the same word, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The context of the passage is set in the preceding verses of Romans chapter 8, where Paul had said, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So it is evident that he was speaking only of the children of Israel, and they being one creature or one creation as opposed to other classes of beings or particular phenomena which God had also created. So even if we accept the clause in Mark chapter 16, it is not necessarily correct to interpret it as a command to preach the gospel to anyone other than the children of Israel which would contradict other things which Christ had said, as well as many other statements of the prophets and the apostles. That creation is very easily rectified in Isaiah chapter 43, where Yahweh said, But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. For I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name. And that's repeated again. That concept is repeated again in Isaiah 43, 7. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. So what catesis, because it, the, the phrase, the word catesis in Mark 16 is accompanied with a definite article, it refers to a particular catesis or creation. Even if we accept the passage, 
that's the proper way to read the passage. It's not referring to every biped on the planet. It's simply not. I don't know if you have anything that you want to add to that. So, so my understanding is that this whole passage wasn't in the earliest manuscripts and it just gradually started to appear and it kept varying from manuscript to manuscript from then on. Right, it first appears in the Codex Alexandrinus. Now, it might have been in some manuscript or other earlier than the Codex Alexandrinus, right? The Codex Alexandrinus didn't appear from nowhere in Alexandria in the 5th century. But if it was in all the earliest manuscripts, then you would expect to read it in the Codex Sinaiticus or the Codex Vaticanus or in other early manuscripts which don't have it. Syriac and Latin manuscripts and, and manuscripts employed by early Christian writers did not have this passage. Where the passage does appear, and I'm, I, I, I don't think it's worth taking the time to translate each one of them. I mean, I can if I so desire, but where the passage does appear, there are significant differences in the manuscripts that do have it which are the Codex Ephraimi Siri, the Codex Alexandrinus, the Codex Washingtonensis, if you look at the three of them, there's significant differences and lengthy interpolations, lengthy additions to this passage in those manuscripts. What, where somebody, some other scribe thought he had to elaborate even further. So I'm not... I, I, I resist offering translations of each of those manuscripts, but if you simply check the apparatus of the, the Novum Testamentum Greca in the 27th or 28th editions, you'll see those interpolations and, and an incredible number of apparatus notes for those manuscripts that include this passage, that they are drastically the passage is drastically different in each of them. Yeah, and um, Mark and the apostles, they weren't professional writers. They didn't have, you know, 10 novels under their belts or, or a, a publisher to do it for them. They just wrote, you know, what they remembered and what they could. And if it didn't have, um, you know, a great professional ending, then that's fine. That's just how he wrote it, even if it is a bit abrupt, right? Well... The Gospel of Mark ends abruptly, and it very well may have been on purpose. It seems not to have been on purpose. It seems that the end of his Gospel is missing according to our expectations today. So yes, that's a good observation. What we have here is in Mark 16.8, Speaking of the disciples finding the open sepulcher and, and the angel or, or young man in, in the long, bright, white garment, garment sitting by the open sepulcher, and, and, and the disciples were astonished, and it says, and they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher 
or the gravesite, right? For they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. And that's where the legitimate portion of the Gospel of Mark ends. And then starting in verse 9, we have this lengthy interpolation with all of these crazy statements in it, like handling snakes and drinking poison, which have no other witness in Scripture. Was Christ, I mean, that might, that might suggest that where Christ spoke about serpents and vipers all throughout the other Gospels, and even in the earlier chapters of Mark, that perhaps he was referring to literal serpents, literal snakes. That's what that suggests to me, but it's not what Christ meant at all. That brings me to want to discuss the purpose of the gospel. While each of the apostles of Christ opened their gospel accounts with a peculiar theme, John being the most complex of them all, Luke stressed the experiences of Mary and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and the pronunciations of the fulfillment of the promises to the fathers. So we shall read from Luke chapter 1, and, and here Luke is citing the father of John the Baptist, whose name was Zacharias. Then Zacharias, his father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophecy, saying, Blessed is <clears throat> Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people. Doesn't say anything about anybody else here. For his people. As Paul wrote in Galatians, that Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. <clears throat> and has raised a horn of salvation for us, meaning those people, in the house of David his servant, just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, so all the words of the prophets concerning salvation and the children of Israel are valid. Preservation from our enemies. So did Christ expect people to take the gospel to his enemies if he's trying to save his people from their enemies? Preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to bring about mercy with our fathers, and to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, which is given to us, being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. Now it says nothing about converting the enemies so that they could serve God, and now you, child, shall be called a prophet of the highest, Zechariah speaking of his newborn son, John the Baptist. For you shall go on before the face of Yahweh to prepare his path, for which to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the dismissal of their sins, of their errors, through the affectionate mercies of our God, whom dawn, by whom dawn visits us from the heights to shine upon those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. They are found in the books of the prophet Isaiah as the children of Israel who are taken off into captivity to guide our feet in a way of peace. And the child grew 
and was strengthened in spirit and was in the wilderness, meaning John the Baptist, until the days of his manifestation to Israel. When he became manifest, he started speaking about the rulers, those who were ruling over Israel, the priests, the Sadducees, the, the Pharisees, as a race of vipers, as the offspring of vipers. And of course, they rejected him. And ultimately, one of those vipers had him killed. This is the purpose of the gospel. Luke was a companion of Paul in several of his journeys. And once Paul was arrested, Luke remained with him, evidently for the duration of Paul's life. He must have had the information concerning the identification of the tribes of Israel and the meanings of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel, which Paul had been teaching. And it is also very likely that where Paul referred to the gospel in his writings, he was referring to this gospel as it was compiled by Luke. So we must know that Luke must have known that the coming of Christ was certainly a fulfillment of the promises of Yahweh to Israel. And that those promises, as they are found in the law and in the prophets, were made only to Israel and were exclusive of all others. And this is evident throughout Luke's writing, both here in his, in his gospel and in the book of Acts. However, the distinction is blurred by bad translations and misunderstood words. So we must keep Luke's understanding as it is reflected here in his record of the words of Zechariah in mind where we encounter the same themes in his later writings. Luke was a Greek, but he had no problem with anything Zechariah said here. And there's nothing that Zechariah said here which would include anybody other than Israelites in the purpose of Christ. Luke wrote this, and he wrote it the way he did, because this is the purpose of Christ. He recorded Zechariah's words as being important because they explain the purpose of Christ. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, Paul probably had uh, one of the greatest understandings, right, of, of all the um, verses and, and the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, so obviously Luke must have picked up on that. If Paul would obviously be explaining it to him constantly as they're journeying through it. And, and you can see that when, uh, you know, Luke writes his gospel, as you just said. Absolutely, because that is the purpose of Scripture, and that is the purpose of Christ, to reconcile himself to his people only, to redeem his people only, and ultimately to destroy all of the enemies of his people, which are his enemies. And today, that would include Jews, Arabs, Negroes, Orientals, um, all, all the mixed races, all of the non-Adamic races. That's the whole meaning of the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. And in the end, all the goats, which are nations, go to the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels.
That's the cold, hard reality of the gospel of Christ. That is what you must really believe if you're going to be a true Christian. That's the message that the Jews prosecuted and persecuted out of existence. And when the Roman Catholic Church began to develop, it was built on compromises, which happened just so happened to suit the Jews in every way. The Trinity is a compromise. The teaching of replacement theology instead of covenant theology is a compromise. And, and the Roman Catholic Church, as it developed, made many other compromises of doctrine, which led Christians away from this truth. And the way the world is today, you really understand the verse where from every bed, one will go to heaven and one lake of fire, right? Absolutely. <clears throat> Origin is destiny, period. If you're not an Adamic man, you're not born from above, or woman, then you're not born from above. And if you're not born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's that simple. And you have no control over it. None of us have any control over that. That's just the cold, hard truth as presented by Scripture. And none of us have any control. None of us can do anything to save ourselves or to unsave ourselves. Origin is destiny. Now, if we sin in this life and we don't repent, then we're not going to like it when we get to where we're going. But if, if we're not going to the kingdom of heaven, then it doesn't matter anyway. And if we're sinners who, who, who see the kingdom of heaven, some of us are going to awaken to eternal contempt, everlasting contempt, because we were of the things we did in this life. So we're not going to like it, but we're going to be there because origin is destiny. And we can't determine it for ourselves. God has already determined it. He determined it from the beginning. The purpose of the gospel is reiterated in Luke. And it's basically the same purpose, but in the words of another man. And our next encounter with that purpose is found as the infant Christ is presented in the temple in Luke chapter 2. And in verse 25, we read, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, expecting the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was forewarned to him by the Holy Spirit not to see death before he should see the anointed prince or the anointed Lord, if you will. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And in there, being introduced to the parents of the child, Yahshua, upon their doing that which is according to the custom of the law concerning him, then he took him into his arms and praised Yahweh. I'm quoting from the Christogenian New Testament here purposely. And praised Yahweh and said, now release your servant, master, in peace, according to your word. 
because mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in front of all the people, a light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. And of course, I'm going to quote that last passage from the King James Version from verse 32. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And the way that's written, it's sort of like the Gentiles and Israel are two different groups. But that is not how it's written in, in the original Greek, and that is not what Simeon is saying. So once again, the scope of the purpose of Christ we see was limited to the children of Israel. The seed of those same fathers to whom the promises were made, where Luke himself had attested that by anticipating the Messiah, and these aren't Simeon's words, these are Luke's words, Luke attested that by anticipating the Messiah, Simeon was expecting the consolation of Israel. Not the consolation of Israel and Gentiles, because the Gentiles were never promised consolation, meaning other races or other nations that were not of Israel. The phrase, phos, which is light, Ice, which is four or two. Phos ice, apocalypsin, which is revelation, a revelation, there's no article. Ethnon, which is of nations, there's no article in the text. The phrase phos ice, apocalypsin, ethnon, found in verse 32 here, is a light for the revelation of the nations in English, it may have been rendered a light for a revelation of the nations or even of nations. The word apocalypsis is a noun, meaning an uncovering, a revelation. The rendering found in the King James Version says, a light to lighten the Gentiles. It translates the noun apocalypsis as a verb, which is incorrect and inexcusable. And the King James Version did that quite often. It very loosely took nouns and translated them as verbs. And that's just wrong. Greek nouns are not verbs. Verbs in Greek can function as nouns in certain constructives called substantives where participles are very often translated as nouns, that's fine, but you don't regularly or, or even normally translate a noun into a verb. It's not right to do. It might work in some context, but it's not right to do that. It's better to translate a noun as a noun. Furthermore, the King James rendering would require that the noun for nations be in the accusative case in order to be a direct object of the non-existent verb. The verb doesn't exist, but it's not in the accusative case. It's in the genitive case. The New American Standard Bible, where it translates this passage, 
properly renders apocalypsis as a noun, but it perverts it in another way by translating that word as if it were in the genitive case rather than in the accusative. So in other words, the translators are twisting this passage to mean what they think it means rather than writing what it says. In chapter 4 of his epistle to the Romans, Paul defined the faith which Abraham had as being a belief in the promises of Yahweh that his offspring would become many nations. Here we see that it is the light of the gospel which would make those nations manifest. And certainly it did once the people of Europe became known collectively as Christendom. As Yahweh, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, had promised to call the prisoners, the captives of Israel, out of darkness, this wonderful truth of the Christian Israel fulfillment of the prophecies of Scripture is therefore hidden in this mistranslation in the King James Version and other versions of the Bible. So we shall read our own translation of verse 32 once more. A light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. And although it is not properly a hendiatus, which is a grammatical construction that employs a definite article and different nouns, which refer to the same entity, the nations and the honor here certainly both belong to your people Israel, meaning the Israel of Yahweh, not the replacement church. The Israelites were prophesied to leave Palestine at an early time. And that's all throughout. That, that's in Genesis chapter 28, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, that, that promise and prophecy from Samuel are repeated. They were prophesied to leave Palestine at an early time and to become many nations. And, and that's found very frequently in Genesis chapter 35, Genesis chapters 48 and 49, and, and many other promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their seed would become many nations, not just one nation in Palestine. And these things certainly happened as it is revealed by a study of ancient history that many of the Greeks, Romans, Trojans, Phoenicians descended from Israelites migrating out of Palestine before the Assyrian captivity, and that the Parthians, the, the Scythians, the Cimmerians, and others all descended from the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity. So along with certain Japetai tribes, such as the Ionians at Athens, whom Paul addressed in Acts chapter 17, these Israelites made up the population of Europe, and they are the white Europeans of today, as opposed to the later Turkic and Arab invaders. To them did the apostles bear the light of the gospel, and in them is found Christendom, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies which concern the true Israelites, but not the Jews, or any of the other so-called races. So if we translate 
this passage properly, we see that the theme, that the purpose of the gospel in chapter 1, in the words of Zacharias, and, and in chapter 2, in the words of Simeon, the purpose of the gospel is being presented by Luke, that that is the theme of his gospel. And that meshes perfectly with the theme of the epistles of Paul. I don't know if you have anything to add to or respond. Um, well, I think, no, I think you explained it really well, that... Um... That even back then they understood that the nations were at least dispersed. They may have not fully understood where at that point, uh, you know, um, Simeon, but Paul and Luke certainly did. I absolutely believe so. And, and Peter did and James did late in their lives. If you read the first epistle of Peter, it, it's addressed to the ministries which Paul originally founded in Western Anatolia. That Peter did come to this realization, and perhaps they learned it from Paul. They had to learn history. Peter and James were common fishermen in Galilee, and by their own mouth, they admitted that they were unlearned men, that they had no learning, no schooling. Paul had an education. Paul learned the law at the feet of Gamaliel, but Paul's writing also betrays the fact, and his upbringing in Tarsus betrays the fact that he was a learned man who was very familiar with the classical Greek writings and histories and, and poets, and, and he quotes them. He, he even mentions quoting their own poets to the Greeks, to certain Greeks, as one of your own poets said, speaking of the Cretans. So, so you could speak at their level and, and yes. their understanding. Yes, but Paul had the education necessary to straddle that the um, Hebrew scriptures with the ancient history and the migrations of the Israelites in captivity and, and before the captivity, that he knew where they went. And that's how he could tell the Romans that they had the truth of God, which only Israel had, and they changed it into a lie. And that's how he could tell the Corinthians that their fathers were in the cloud were baptized in the cloud and in the sea with Moses. That's how he could do that. Otherwise, his words are nonsense. But we can pick up secular literature of the time and see that Paul's words are not nonsense, that they are true. Once we understand, for instance, that the testimonies in, in Josephus and the migrations of the Dorians, and, and how they actually came from the ancient Israelites. Once you translate these passages correctly, you'll see that this entire narrative is consistent from one end of the Bible to the other. There are no discrepancies, and that the apostles simply weren't going to Gentiles, meaning non-Jew, not at all. They were going to gentilis, meaning, as the Latin word originally means, to people of the same kindred race. That they were going to the 
ethnoi, or nations, which descended from Abraham, period, as Paul explained in detail in Romans chapter 4, and in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, although those passages are also perverted by churchmen, by the denominational churches. The taught replacement theology from the beginning. Christianity was corrupted in the second century. When you see this, this replacement theology in the writings of Justin Martyr and Origen and Clement of Alexandria, Clement and Origen, they were, um, well, I can't speak for Origen in this sense, but Clement was originally a Gnostic. And that was a Jewish school in Alexandria. And, and he became a Christian, but he took a lot of his Gnostic ideas with him. And Justin Martyr was a Samaritan who learned his Christianity from the Judeans of Jerusalem, or, or of what used to be Jerusalem, because it was destroyed by his time. But nevertheless, those Judeans rejected Paul of Tarsus. Justin Martyr never quoted Paul of Tarsus and may have been ignorant of him. So he didn't have the enlightenment that even Peter and James later had. Where James wrote his epistle to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, he must have known where they were. He must have come to know that during the time between the, the um, crucifixion between the crucifixion and resurrection and the time when he wrote that epistle before the end of his life in 62 AD. He was killed by the party of the Sadducees in Jerusalem. And James probably wrote that epistle towards the end of his life rather than towards the beginning of his ministry. And you could also see it in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, chapters 1 and 2 where he called the recipients of his epistle a chosen race, singular. And, and he wasn't using that word race to describe believers. <laughs> he was using it to address a particular race of people. This leads me to discuss an anomaly in scripture, or, or at least a perceived anomaly, because so many Christians read the New Testament without any understanding of the historical background. There's a woman of the tribe of Asher. And mention of this woman of Asher is found in Luke chapter 2, verse 36, right here after the testimony of Simeon. And at least some Jewish commentators have used this single woman to claim that representatives of all 12 tribes of Israel were among the Judeans practicing Judaism in Palestine, misleading Christians to believe that the Jews are all of Israel. And, and that's certainly not true. And, and it's kind of um, reminds me of the, the Holocaust problem, just like the claim concerning the extermination of six million Jews is made out of a few typhus deaths in a work camp, they get millions of Jews in Judea from this one woman who was never a Jew. While most of the children of Israel lost their tribal identity in captivity, not all of the tribe of Asher was taken into captivity. It is apparent in scripture and in history that the ancient city of Tyre was a city 
in territory belonging to the tribe of Asher and that the children of Asher had certainly inhabited that city. While the Tyrians submitted themselves as tributary to the Assyrians, the Assyrians did not destroy the city. But later, when they revolted against the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed only the mainland portion of Tyre and left the island portion intact as he was unable to reach it in order to destroy it. So during the Persian period, which followed that of the Babylonians, many Tyrians spread themselves back to the mainland. And as Herodotus describes them in the 5th century BC, they built and manned many ships for the Persian navy as it invaded Greece. Later, upon the coming of Alexander, the island city was finally destroyed, but we can see how Tyrians, who maintained their Israelite identity as Asher, may have remained throughout the seven centuries from the Assyrian captivity to the time of Christ. So just because there's one woman or one family that maintained its identity as a part of the tribe of Asher, and there probably were more, that doesn't mean that there were Israelites of all 12 tribes in Judea. It certainly doesn't mean that, as most of the people in Judea were either Edomites or they were of the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. And the historic records attest that there were only two tribes. And these are the words of Flavius Josephus. I think he said two and a half tribes who were under the authority of Rome, who, who were practicing Judaism, whom Josephus would recognize as Judeans under the authority of Rome, while the nine and a half tribes were beyond the Euphrates, and that's a reference to the Parthians and the Scythians, who were an innumerable multitude in his time. So there were not 12 tribes in Palestine, and you cannot prove that because one woman of the tribe of Asher was in Judea, and we can see in history how that could be so in the history of ancient Tyre. It's that simple. Once you understand that historical backdrop, it's very plausible that were, there were people who remembered being of the tribe of Asher in that region. So I just thought I had to mention that because we were at Luke chapter 2. And that was the very next verse at, after the um, encounter with Simeon. When they went to Carthage and, uh, you know, Iberia and, and Britain, they, they did lose their identity, though, didn't they? Yes. Ultimately, all of the Israelites who, who had departed from Palestine and settled elsewhere, whether it was Iberia or, or um, the, among the in the um, islands and, and coastlands that later became known as Greece or, or as Rome or Italy or, or the Phoenicians who went to Carthage. Yeah, they all ultimately lost their tribal identity. We do not see those anything truly significant 
um, indicating that they maintain their identities in subsequent history or, or in the archaeology of, of Western Europe. We just don't see it. That the only exception would be some of the tribe of Dan, which did maintain their tribal identity, evidently, in, in the names that they used, in, in not only in Europe and in Britain, but in the British Isles, but also in Italy, in, in the word Sardinia and the name of the island Sardinia, that there are ancient inscriptions written in Phoenician alphabet. Phoenician letters that identify Sardinia as Shardana. And Shardana in Hebrew means a remnant or a portion of Dan. So, And, and that's amazing that they did it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, the Danans, well, well, they were probably among the earlier of the seafaring Israelite tribes, and they seem to have maintained their identity where the other tribes, you just don't see their names in their wanderings. Carthage means new city. It, if we look at the original Hebrew from which the, the Romans derived the word Carthage, because Carthage is a Roman word, it means new city. And, and the Phoenicians of Carthage did not maintain any tribal designation. They're only remembered in history to us as Carthaginians. Or at least if they did have any um, sense of what, if they did maintain any sense of what tribe they came from, that was lost where their history is only recorded by their enemies, by the Romans. Or or by the Greeks, who who they were hostile towards. So why should the Romans or the Greeks maintain peculiar what they would have seen as peculiarities um, among the Phoenicians? When when to the Romans and Greeks they were all just Phoenicians or Carthaginians, and the, and they didn't do that. But the tribal names of Phoenicians and and descendants of Phoenicians and and Celts, that the Kimri or Cimmerians in Britain, they didn't maintain any tribal names either from, from ancient times. They had new names. They had new names describing new divisions of the people or new settlements of the people. And that's the case wherever they went. I believe the Dorians preserved an understanding of where they came from in, in the name Dorian. They were from Dor. And, and that's supported historically in, in the records maintained in First Maccabees and, and in Flavius Josephus, that they were Israelites. And I think you can see in their traditions that they always remained separate, at least like the Spartan region, like Edomonians, that they had the tradition that they didn't mingle so much with the, the rest of the Greeks. And that's probably why. Well, well, right, but even the Athenians understood that you were a bastard if you were half Athenian and half something else, no matter what anything else was, because the world was, it, it was white at the time. I mean, Cyrus was considered a bastard by Herodotus. Herodotus was a Dorian, but he considered Cyrus a bastard because he was half Persian and half Mede. Speaking of bastards, that, lead, that, that leads us to the next 
clause that I would like to discuss. And and we discussed this a little earlier, I, I think, in our opening remarks this evening. And and it was it's found recorded very similarly in Matthew chapter 23. But our contention with it is nevertheless the same here. So we saved it for Luke. And, and that's Luke chapter 11, verses 45 through 52. And it might be um, burdensome to read at this time because we've already discussed it. And I don't think we intended to, but we did at the, at the beginning of this program. But I'm going to cite it. And starting with verse 45, then replying to one of the then, then replying one of the lawyers, because Christ was condemning the lawyers along with the scribes and Pharisees, one of the lawyers said to him, Teacher, saying these things, you also insult us. Now, now notice that that was never the response when he called them a race of vipers, right? So he said, And to you lawyers, woe, because you load men with burdens hard to bear. And these burdens you touch not, you touch with not one of your fingers. Woe to you, because you build the monuments of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Therefore you are witnesses, and you consent to the works of your fathers, because they killed them, and you build. You build their monuments. For this reason also the wisdom of Yahweh says, I shall send to them prophets and ambassadors, and some of them they shall kill, and they shall persecute. In order that the blood of all the prophets spilled from the foundation of the society should be required from this race and from the blood of Abel under the blood of Zacharias, who was killed between the altar and the house. Yeah, I say to you, it shall be required from this race. Woe to you lawyers, because you have taken the key of knowledge. You do not enter in yourselves and you prohibit those who are entering in. So that Greek word, genea, which the King James Version translates as generation, and which most versions do, that word genea is a race, a stock, a family, or also a tribe or a nation. And then in a secondary meaning, a race, comma, generation. And by saying generation, Liddell and Scott do not intend on separating it from its meaning of race, where they said a race, comma, generation. You cannot separate the word from its primary meaning, even if it refers to all the members of a perfect, of a race who happen to be alive at a given time it still does not lose its racial connotation, ever. It can't because that's what it inherently means. In the King James Version, it is more often than not translated as generation, as it also is here. And the way we understand generation today, that would be in defiance of not only the basic meaning of the word here, but also of the context. In this context, where we have references to sons and fathers, both near and remote in time, 
which we see in verses 47 and 48, and where we have events from both the remote past and the recent past in focus in reference to Abel and Zacharias in verse 51, the word must be rendered as race. It simply cannot be referring to merely a single generation, or as we may define the term, a mere portion of a race which exists at any particular time. I don't know if you have anything to say in response to that. Yeah, this is just another case where they always, the, the, the denominational churches just cannot face that race issue, right? It's always, oh, this he was only talking to those people at that time, and, and we shouldn't blame anybody for that, you know? Well, well, if he was only talking to people at that time, which is what they say, then why does he call their parents vipers when he calls them the offspring of vipers? And if their parents are vipers, and if that makes them vipers, what does that make their children? And um, Abel to Zechariah, that's like 5,000 years, right? A timeline. He's blaming them for all the murders over that timeline. Right, exactly. And and that is when you look back in the Old Testament and, and you see who was responsible for killing the priests and the prophets of Yahweh, While it doesn't tell us most of the time, it really doesn't, the times that it does tell us, we find Doug the Edomite or or Jezebel or or people of that caliber are the ones that actually um, seek to kill the prophets. Now, Saul was looking for a man that Saul had had, um, basically been alienated from God. And he was looking for someone to kill the priests of God who were prophesying against him and speaking against him. And he sought somebody from among his men and nobody would do it except Doug the Edomite. And Doug the Edomite wasn't one of his military leaders. Doug the Edomite was working for Saul in, I think, in the capacity of a shepherd or 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 some capacity like that, I'm going to try to go look. Doug the Edomite was chiefest of the herdsmen that belonged to Saul, according to the scripture. So he was a private individual, and he wasn't even a soldier. But he was volunteering to slay the priests of God on behalf of Saul, when none of his own Israelite officers would would volunteer for the task. 1 Samuel chapter 21. So when we do see that the priests are being killed or the prophets are being killed, it's usually the enemies of God who can be identified as being behind it. And, And there are other examples of that in scripture, even if they're not as explicit. And with Judas, just like you said, he needed a betrayer, so, so he just got an either right? Well, well, right. He needed a betrayer, and and that's because the Psalms prophecy that there would be a betrayer. So he needed a betrayer, and he picked a devil. He purposely chose an Edomite for that task. 
because all the evidence points to the fact that Judas must have been an Edomite. Being a man of Kerioth in the south of Judea, and, and not one of the people of Galilee who were most of the others of the, of the apostles. And if we look up Kerioth in the Old Testament, it is not one of the places that the people that returned to Jerusalem had settled. They settled, they resettled the towns and villages around Jerusalem and in Galilee. And later on, they conquered all the other cities and forced them to convert to Judaism. Kerioth was one of those places that they would have conquered. So there's um, circumstantial evidence that Judas was indeed an Edomite, and Christ identifies him as a devil, sparing one of his own people from having to, from, from having to fulfill the task, which was elucidated by the prophets that that would happen, which was prophecy to happen. My old familiar friend who had lifted up his heel against me. Speaking of an evil race, this brings us to one more mention of such a phenomenon, and that's found in Luke chapter 16 in the parable of the unrighteous steward. And I'm going to read it. And this is from the Christogenian New Testament. I'm purposely reading it from the Christogenian New Testament and not from the King James Version. From verse 1. Then he also said to the students, there was a certain wealthy man who had a steward, and he had suspected him of squandering his possessions. And calling him, he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your stewardship for you are no longer able to be steward. And the steward said to himself, what shall I do that my master has taken the stewardship from me? I am not able to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, in order that when I have been removed from the stewardship, they shall receive me into their houses. And calling on each one of those indebted to his master, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred baths of olive oil. A bath is, I believe, about nine gallons or nine and a half gallons. It was about roughly equivalent to the Greek amphora. So it's a significant amount of oil. So he said to him, take your records and quickly write down 50. Next, he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred cores of grain, which would be like a hundred bushels. He says to him, take your records and write down 80. He didn't give him as much of a break, right? And the master praised the unrighteous steward. Evidently, he got caught, right? Because he did wisely. Because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. In other words, the master praised the unrighteous. He busted him. He, he must have caught him. And he praised him because he was cunning. And that's the way he was expected to act. And that's why he was removing him from the stewardship in the first place. The master praised the unrighteous steward because he did wisely, because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. 
And I say to you, shall you make for yourselves friends from the riches of unrighteousness, that when you should fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings? And that's a rhetorical question. So there's two contentions here with this passage. The first is that word race, where the King James Version has generation. And the second is the reading of verse 9, where in the Christogenian New Testament, it's a rhetorical question. And in the King James Version, it was interpreted as a plain statement that Christ is basically recommending that his disciples should make friends from the riches of unrighteousness. So that those friends, when they should fail, when the disciples fail, those friends may receive them into eternal dwellings. Is that really what Christ is promoting? Or am I correct in my translation that this is a rhetorical question? So I would contend that the parable of the unrighteous steward is very poorly understood because those concluding verses are very poorly translated. Some denominational commentators, and this I've read this in, in several commentaries, and this sickened me. They even claim that Yahweh God justifies stealing in order to uphold the veracity of the King James Version and other translations, denominational translations of this passage. So they would rather call God a liar than imagine their precious King James Version might be wrong. So our contention here is with verses 8 and 9, and an examination of those verses shall reveal a very different meaning in this parable from what most Bible studies and commentaries suggest. In fact, I would even say from what all of the other Bible studies and commentaries suggest. Because they're basically suggesting that Christ is approving of stealing and telling his disciples that they should do the same. No wonder why we get Christian Marxists or Marxists that claim that they should be Christians. That's why. that It's passages and attitudes like that that support that trash. Concerning the text of Luke 16.8, as we have already said several times, Ganea is defined as a race, a stock, or a family, and therefore it is race here. And it can't be generation, as it may be in some contexts, a race or, or generation, and therefore an age or time of life. So... This is evident resorting to any other biblical records that here it should be race from the full statement alone. And, and I shall endeavor to explain that. The full clause in Greek, because the sons of this age, where it says of this age, that's that word ahionis, and, and the King James Version might have the sons of this world, but the phrase is ahionis, it refers to a period of time. Ahionis never refers to a place or, or to anything else but a period of time. Because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are. And and then after it says sons of light, huios to photos. It says, Ice tain Ghanaian, tain Hoton Isin, which are 
towards their own race. I am going to try to make this briefer than I had even originally written it. And of course, this was written for papers that I have done on this passage in the past. I'll go through each Greek word in this clause. And the first word is hoki, because, because the sons of this age. Hoki is commonly because, and oihuioi is the sons. And this, this phrase, hoi huioi, which is the sons, is in the nominative case. And therefore, it is the subject of the clause, the subject of the verb in the clause. The next phrase, to ahionis tautu, is of this age. And the pronoun tautu refers to what precedes it, which is why it's last. That's the way Greek construction is. The word ahionis is the genitive singular form of ahion or eon. It's the word we get the English word eon from, and it means age. And ahion, according to Liddell and Scott, is a period of existence, an age, a generation, a long space of time, or a definite space of time, such as an era or an epoch. It depends on the context, right? So this is the source of our English word eon, which is a long space of time. And usually in the New Testament, it infers a long period of time. And it may be presumed to be the equivalent of the span of many generations as we use that term today. But it doesn't always have to mean that. It could be used, as Liddell and Scott define it, to refer to a single generation. It's an indeterminate length of time. So therefore, if ahion infers such a long space of time here, which is the natural meaning of the word, then when we get to the word genea later in the same sentence, it must be rendered as race. And that's because if Christ is making a reference to this age, we might infer that more than one generation could be used to fill this age, whereby it has to be rendered as race. It can't be rendered as generation. But if Ahion infers a shorter duration of time, a single generation or an era, then Ganea still must be rendered as race. Or the use of the word is redundant and it becomes meaningless. And Christ is speaking nonsense if these two words both refer to that particular space of time. Then it's just nonsense. The King James Version translators must have realized this predicament. And here, as they did elsewhere, they rendered Ahiona's world. And that's a meaning that the word certainly does not have. Ahion can only refer to a period of time. It is not a reference to space or to any physical object. So the way they wrote world, we infer that it means a, a, a place. And Ahion cannot refer to a place. It refers to a period of time. And if Ahion in this sentence refers to a period of time, then Genea in this sentence cannot refer to a period of time. It must refer to something else, and the word is naturally 
race. The next words, Greek words in this clause are, are phronimotoroi hooper, which is translated as are wiser than, but may, may have been rendered are wiser beyond. Now that word are, they are, the third person plural of the verb is or to be, that word are comes from the last word of the sentence in Greek, which is isen. And, and that's because the Greek word order is not always the same as the English word order. And isen is the third person plural form of aimi, and it means they are. Aimi means I am, isen means they are. This arrangement is common in Greek. Where, where this word order, the verb is often left at the end of the sentence. That word hooper is a preposition which is properly over or beyond what follows. But here we didn't render it as over or beyond, although we could have. That phronimos here, phronimotoroi, is a comparative form, wiser. So the conjunction than in English are wiser than is sufficient to express the meaning to be wiser beyond in English, right? We write naturally write wiser than. And then the next phrase is two spheres, which is once again the sons. But here the phrase is in the accusative case, which distinguishes the noun that we use that it represents as the object of a verb or of certain prepositions. So here it is the object of the preposition hooper or beyond, which is rendered as than in our translation. The sons, and then we have the phrase of light, and that's a genitive singular. The genitive is a case that expresses possession, source, measurement, and, and here the sons, the preceding noun, belongs to it, so it's the sons of light. So you have two groups here being distinguished, the sons of this age and the sons of light, and they're clearly separate groups, and one group is the subject of the clause, and the other, of the verb in the clause, and the other group is the object of this preposition. So it's two distinct groups that are not like one another. One group is the sons of this age, the other group is the sons of light. And being the sons of this age and the sons of light, it, they're not just believers and disbelievers. If you could choose one, that, that's not what the concept represents. These are two distinct groups. The next word is a preposition. And it's only used with nouns of the accusative case in normal circumstances. So here it's tain geneon, and that's the object of this preposition. And tain geneon is the race in the accusative case. So ice is properly into or to, and among other things, it could be at, with, or to, or towards, or in regard to, or as we say, for, F-O-R. And in certain contexts, it may sometimes be rendered in, but it is not commonly in. So Liddell and Scott give an example where in English we would say to look in the face, 
rather than the literal at or towards the face. So the in where it says in their generation here in the King James Version would probably be expressed with n and the dative case, but not with ice and the accusative case as it is found here. So in their generation makes no sense with ice and the accusative case. If the King James translation was correct where it says in this verse, in their generation, that would be with the preposition n and the, accus the dative case, not ice and the accusative. Something else is being said here, and that's the fact that this is a comparison, that the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are, in respect of or in regard to their own race. That's what the construction means. It's not simply in their generation. Tain geneon, tain hotone is the next clause. <clears throat> and it's literally the race that is of themselves. So we have ice, tain geneon, tain hotone towards their own race or towards the race that is of themselves. There's a, um, a mismatch here, which, which is purposeful, which proves, helps to prove our translation is true. And, and that's the tain, tain geneon, tain hotone, the noun geneon, and both of the articles are in the accusative case, but hotone is the genitive case. And there is substantiation for that in Greek grammar, where hotone is a, is a pronoun that reflects back to the subject. Therefore, tengeneon here belongs to one party only, the sons of this age, who are the subject of the clause. And so the word geneon must again be rendered race and not generation, since both the sons of this age and the sons of light are obviously contemporaneous, sharing or existing in the same period of time. While they are obviously not a part of the same generation, but they are of two different races. So while such number and case mis mismatches are rare, here we have a, an accusative article, tain, and it's accusative while it's singular, while its noun, hotone, is genitive plural, yet this is done expressly in order to avoid confusion to show the relationship between hotone, their own, and tain geneon, race here. It shows that relationship. So we have their own generation as compared to the generation of the sons of light? No, because they're all alive at the same time. We have their own race as opposed to the race of the sons of light. That's what's being said here. And the grammar doesn't leave room and the meanings of the words don't leave room for any other interpretation. The King James in their generation is deceptive here. It's a lie. The result of the study of the grammar here 
leaves no question that Tanganeon, the race, belongs to Hawtone of themselves, referring to the subject of the clause, the sons of this age. That word, Isin, is the final word in the Greek, and, and that's they are in Greek. And in English, we have to move it up to the big, uh, up sooner in the sentence to make it have, make sense in English. So we read Luke 16, 8 to say, and the master praised the unrighteous steward because he did wisely, because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. That is the perfectly literal, natural meaning of that sentence. And now it should be manifest that this verse is describing sons of this age and sons of light as two separate races which have vied with one another throughout the age just as genesis 3:15 forebode that they would once we translate this passage correctly we realize that it is indeed a parable about those two seeds of genesis 3:15 and it is not a parable about yahweh our god approving the breaking of his own commandment which is thou shalt not steal and in order to understand that we have to turn our attention to the next verse to luke 16 9 and and the grammar in luke 16 9 i say to you shall you make for yourselves friends from the riches of unrighteousness that when you should fail they may receive you into eternal dwellings the grammar is very naturally read as a question, but I've never seen it translated in any version as a question except my own. Many commentators use this verse as a statement to justify the wicked methods of the dishonest steward, which amount to stealing. And they've written pages and pages of drivel in, in order to support that. The construction of the verbs very naturally makes this verse a rhetorical question, where you have a verb of the indicative mood followed by a verb of the subjunctive mood. And this verb, poiesate, is the future indicative of poieo, and it's shall you make, where the later verb, eclipe, is the aorist subjunctive of eclipo is when you should fail or when you may fail, preceded by hotan, which is at a particle, which means when. It might be written when you may fail or when you might fail. There's another verb, dexontahi here, which is the aorist subjunctive form of dekomahi, and followed by the pronoun you, and being in the third person plural, they may receive you, or they might receive you. And, and a similar pattern of verbs is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 5. The indicative mood, which we have in the first verb here, poiesate, is often used in interrogation and even without an interrogatory particle. And, and that's often done by Luke, where it is mentioned as, and, and marked as a question in the King James Version and in the Nestle Land Novum Testamentum Greke. And, and I have a list here 
of, of this where it is it is recognized by the translators in a whole series of passages in both Luke and Acts. So I, I am not making grammatical innovations here. It's recognized throughout that Luke's writing that this is, or, or that this could be a question. Now, biblical evidence that in context, this interpretation is correct is quite plain. First, the commandment states that thou shalt not steal. And Christ is certainly not endorsing embezzlement here. The master praises the steward because he acted according to his kind. But second, it is certain that the friends of the unrighteous steward cannot receive him into any eternal dwelling. Only Yahweh himself can do that. Third, the subsequent verse in Luke 16, verse 13, plainly states that one cannot serve both Yahweh and riches or mammon simultaneously. So the obvious answer to the question asked here in verse 9 is no. And the real lesson here is that the unrighteous steward, evidently one of the sons of this age, acted as those of his race are expected to act craftily because they have no reward hereafter. And they can't make deals with the devil so that they could live forever because the devil can't grant them eternal life, period. The sons of light, the true Adamic Israelites, should not do as the others and, and steal craftily. The Israelites' eternal dwelling is with Yahweh, and there is no other. So he should store his treasure there, since worldly riches or mammon mean nothing. That's the meaning of the parable of the wicked steward. It's contrasting two races of people and their innate behavior and teaching the sons of light that they should not act in the manner in which the sons of this age are naturally, inherently, how they act. And if you just look throughout history, just like the past 2,000 years, for example, you can see this, this very prophecy playing out, right? How we've always fought each other and warred amongst ourselves and been very stupid, right? Like, like for example, when the Turks invaded, all of East Europe were just squabbling and fighting amongst themselves, and gradually the Turks kept getting further and further, rather than all allying and uh, working against the Turkish invasion, you know, just as an example. And on the contrary, the Jews have always cleverly collaborated together, not because they love each other, but just out of necessity. They understand the only way the descendants of Cain can win, or at least, you know, temporarily win over us is by collaborating and working together, e even like sacrificing their own wealth to help each other, right? Absolutely. And they use craft and guile, and they will sacrifice some of their own wealth to help advance their cause because they know that they'll get that wealth back many times over as, as, they, as their cause succeeds. Look at how much they've, that they've profited from the foundation of the Federal Reserve. 
So they made lots of unseemly bribes and investments, investments which were really bribes, in, in order to get to that point where they could establish the Federal Reserve. And once they did it, they've been stealing us blind ever since. And they steal us blind simply by printing more, more and more money so that we don't even see the theft. But the master of the unrighteous steward did see the theft. He did see what he was doing. Once he saw what he was doing, he could only commend him for being the serpent that he was, for acting out for his own interests after his own kind. That doesn't mean that he didn't fire him. That doesn't mean that he was, no, he, he was going to be the steward again because he got caught stealing even more after he was already being told that he was being relieved. So we, we can't imagine that God is advocating that his disciples be thieves like the unrighteous steward. Well, thank you for being here. And, and this program will probably be almost three hours. I don't know yet. <laughs> yep, a long one. But yeah, yeah, and then um, hopefully we can start getting on to Paul's letters and Acts maybe next week, right? Unless yeah, you've got any more from Luke. I, I don't know if I have any more from Luke or not. I, I really didn't look that far ahead in my notes. Of course, these presentations are just um, recapitulations of things I've written so that we get them into this format of 100 proofs. And, and even though these mistranslations do not, prove that the Israelites were white, they do prove that the New Testament, as well as the Old, are books written to a particular race of people, so that where we do prove that the Israelites are white, we see that this is all for one race of people, that is the white race. And it's consistent from front to back. If we'd only clear up some of these misunderstandings and mistranslations, there are no discrepancies with that statement, not one. Yep, so it's important exactly. to incorporate these things into 100 proofs because they support all the other proofs. So on that note, thank you, Truthvids. <laughs> Thanks, man, me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European race. Thank you. Praise Yahweh.